0: Hi, everyone. This is part one of a two-part interview I had with geographer Dr. Jacob Schell. He's also an author, and he specializes in transportation networks and the interface between humans and other animals when it comes to getting around. We spend quite a bit of time talking about one of his books, Giants of the Monsoon Forest, Living and Working with Elephants. His work and this book really examines so many aspects of how connected we all are that we just couldn't cover it in one podcast. When we consider how we use other species to meet our needs, one has to ask, are we and can we also meet the needs of those species that we depend on? How can we ensure their autonomy and independence in a rapidly changing world that we dominate. Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdalen.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. There's been kind of a consistent theme over the past few episodes that the issues that we face and the goals of conservation and environmental protection seem to have quite a few gray areas. This is a tough perspective for me because I've often had really clear lines about what's okay and what's not okay, especially as it applies to other animals. This has even placed me at odds with fellow scientists and made me not get jobs. For example, After I graduated with my PhD and was looking for a postdoc, I applied for a job to do research on beach mice, and I was quite horrified to discover that the way that the beach mice were being marked, and remember, this is now in 2008 was the way that they were being marked was by cutting off of their toes and by cutting off their toes in patterns that were unique, which means that you had more than one toe cut off. And I quickly did research to find non-invasive, non-painful, non-deforming, non-harmful methods for individually marking beach mice because I understood the importance of being able to tell different mice apart, but I felt like using archaic and old methods was kind of lazy and lacked creativity. Needless to say, during the interview, I brought up this issue of the ethical approach, or rather the lack of ethics being used to study these beach mice. And the way that I did it was Asking if they had considered other methods or alternatives. At that time, it was uh, fluorescent dye, and, and there were some other uh, ways that individual beach mice could be tracked without harming them. And I was pretty shocked to find that the lead scientist, who was also interviewing me, out of hand rejected any change to the methods being used. Naturally, when I responded less than in a friendly manner by suggesting that perhaps they needed to work a little bit harder to think about how to do their research without harming another species, the interview was terminated and I was not hired. (laughs) Um, So, you know, for me, this over time has still been a pretty hard line when it comes to accomplishing research without harming other animals and that if you can't do that, then either A, you need to ask a different question or B, you're not trying hard enough. Um, now, again, like I said, this is still a hard line for me, but other lines seem to be getting a bit more fuzzy, muddy even, which is how I felt when I read Dr. Jacob Schell's book, Giants of the Monsoon Forest. Living and Working with Elephants. At first, I thought it would be all about elephants, and certainly there was quite a bit about elephants. But it was also a lot about us, humans, and how we have relied on elephants for transportation, labor, and even combat. I didn't know this before reading his book. But it was also about the interaction between the keeper of an elephant, the indigenous cultures that rely on elephants, and the elephants themselves. As much as I thought I knew about elephants and people, this book opened up a whole nother world and it raised a lot of questions about ethics, communities that rely on other species, and conservation. That's when I knew I had to talk to Dr. Jacob Shell. I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Jacob Schell to the show today. Uh, He's doing such incredible work. And and I just feel really honored to have him here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much
1: for having me on. I'm really excited to talk about elephants and whatever else our discussion uh, goes in and out of.
0: That's right. We actually we have so much to talk about, including your incredible book, Giants of the Monsoon Forest, Living and Working with Elephants. But first, tell me a little bit about kind of what you do.
1: Well, I'm a professor of geography uh, at Temple University, which is in Philadelphia, uh, in case some people haven't heard of it. Um, And a a lot of what I focus on is things like cartography and moving across interesting landscapes and analyzing them. But uh, over the course of doing that, I became incredibly interested in transportation animals, which is, say, animals that have a history of. being used by humans for transportation, and sometimes that's a relatively co-produced relationship where the animals are sometimes doing it more voluntarily than at first meets the eye, which is a part of what I argue with Asian elephants in South and Southeast Asia. So we'll get to that in a moment. But I've also written about um geographies that are organized around mules like mules as transportation horses carrier pigeons so sometimes we don't normally think about something that small as being relevant to transportation but carrier pigeons are called carrier pigeons so they're carrying something uh, oftentimes little messages though it can be uh, other things as well so this whole topic of um, animals as uh, a means of facilitating human mobilities uh, is something that I've been uh, in, uh, really centrally interested in for for many years. And I guess of all the different little research case studies that I've focused in on, uh, the one that kind of just kind of blew up on me and wound up sort of flowering into something much huger than I was originally expecting was the one on Asian elephants. It wound up becoming a basically a seven-year-long research project, which culminated in my book, the title of which you just mentioned. Um, and Yeah. On the whole, that's, that's what I do. I I won't, there's other stuff that I teach and write about kind of around the edges, but I don't want to, I don't want listeners to get lost in all that. So I think transportation animals and maps is basically how I'd cover it.
0: Okay. Now I'm curious, was following sort of that thread of how animals are involved in transportation and in movement across landscapes. I mean, it makes sense from a geographical, you know, as a geographer point of view, but does it also strike a, a kind of a, a part of intre- a, a part of you that has an interest in animals and nature and wildlife? Or was that sort of just kind of tangential to the main topic of transportation?
1: Well, I mean, I've always loved Certain animals. I've always loved nature. I've always loved going on walks in the forest, Uh, and I don't know. We had pets and dogs and cats and things like that when I was growing up. But I wouldn't say that this is something that uh, it's like I was surrounded with horses and llamas and mules growing up, and that's sort of how I arrived at the topic. I'd love to say that that would that would sort of pack a certain punch, but it wouldn't be true. And it's not exactly um how I arrived at the topic. No, uh, what sort of happened uh, for me was that in graduate school. I was, again, I was very interested in transportation issues. Um, I became interested in transportation cultures that uh, are very centered on smuggling and smuggling networks, like moving things around illicitly or secretly or clandestinely. Uh, And actually for, for many years, this is like what my graduate dissertation was about. Uh, that was very focused on canal networks and waterfronts and the sorts of opportunities and surveillance problems that those create in terms of policing and surveillance and things like that. So it really sounds very different than what I wound up doing shortly after that. But from my point of view, it wasn't so different because what um, I basically picked up on, uh, it's a bit complicated how, but I picked up on the fact that Uh, In a particular part of South and Southeast Asia, basically the border region of uh, northeastern India and the western and northern part of the country, which is sometimes called Myanmar and sometimes called Burma, um, you have elephants. And they are, to a large degree, uh, a way for people to get around the forest country of that area relatively secretly, so without being surveilled by the various um, army and police networks that exist. Uh, in those areas and that was fascinating to me as you might imagine and so I just sort of became more and more and more preoccupied with that topic um, and I think that's a sort of a long-standing childhood interest in animals and wilderness was able to kind of be revived and sort of be like kind of rewedded to my more grad school types of interests um, and so the two sort of came together in a very sort of fruitful way um, And it's not as if elephants are only used for secretive transportation. Uh, One of the things that really became fascinating to me um, in this research process was how elephants, the same things that make them really useful for secretive transportation, make them um, extremely useful as well for flood season transportation. It's sort of the same principle, elephants being especially evolved to move around this landscape without having to use the road system. Um, so that that's something I suppose we we can uh, get to, and and I'm sure you have later questions about that because it comes up so heavily in the book. But that sort of gives you uh, the honest answer of how I arrived uh, at the topic. Um, I didn't grow up surrounded by horses and llamas and things like that, and then figured I'd branch out to elephants. It was a it was a bit different.
0: No, I mean I think that's you know I, I love hearing how you know what path people take to arrive at those places that culminate in something really as special as as this book. Um, now you mentioned the area and, and so this this border kind of area between is it like uh, you know China India kind of Thailand and and Myanmar, and Bur- or Burma, depending on how it's being referred to. We can, mm-hmm. we can talk about that a little bit later, but, um, and I'm, i my pronunciation is probably going to be pretty bad on some of, of the, the words here, but the Transpatkai region, is that the forested area that you did your work in? And okay. And so can you kind of describe or paint a picture of, what that forest looks like. And you already kind of mentioned sort of flooding and we know from the title monsoon season. So, so what is particular about this area that you decided to zero in on? Um,
1: Yeah, I'd love to talk about that, uh, of course. Um, So the Transpatkai region, uh, this just means the region on both sides of the Patkai mountains and the Patkai mountains is sort of the, that's basically the physical feature that is the border between Myanmar and India. Even though in the book, I usually refer to the country as Burma uh, for various reasons, I think for the sake of not confusing listeners, I'll try really hard in this interview to refer to it as Myanmar because it is it is much more frequently being referred to that way in the news now, so I think it'll it'll confuse listeners a lot less. But it is it is the same term for the same country. And you know, in ten years, who knows what, what term will wind up winning out. And yes, there's an extremely intense monsoon season. Uh, basically late summer, early fall, or the equivalent of those months uh, that occurs in in this area. I think there are some patches of uh, maybe Bangladesh and elsewhere in Northeast India, which technically have an even more intensive uh, monsoon flooding season than the the Transpatkai area. But um, the Transpatkai is pretty close. And in addition to having this very intensive flooding season, uh, it's basically, it sort of depends how you measure uh, extent of forest cover, but it's basically the largest remaining uh, rainforest in mainland Southeast Asia. And I hasten to say mainland because um, you basically have larger chunks of uninterrupted uh, forest still in the uh, some of the offshore islands, like I think in particular Borneo has a larger forest than in the Transpatkai region. But the Transpakai region, so again, that's northern Myanmar and a sort of sliver of Northeast India that's along the border of Myanmar. Um, This is the largest remaining rainforest in in mainland Asia. And so uh, in that way, it's a hugely significant area. Um, It's relatively far away from the kind of traditional and historical centers of state power, uh, which would be more sort of associated with Southern Myanmar, uh, the big cities uh, uh, and, and sort of centers of political power being And Yangon and Nepidan Mandalay, which is relatively far from this region. And uh, the uh, the same thing is is true with India, too, where a lot of the center of political power is not in northeast India, but in the central part of India, where New Delhi is. And so it's relatively remote, though it doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, uh, like listeners should not imagine an uninhabited landscape by any means. It can feel very dense with human settlement uh, in a lot of places. But uh, it has extraordinary flora and fauna. Uh, large uh, megafauna are in the area: uh, elephants, some remaining rhinoceroses, leopards. Um, there's supposed to be some tigers left, but uh, it doesn't seem like I, I, it doesn't seem like very many have been seen in a number of years. Uh, though perhaps the population could be revived, even though it is the last remaining chunk of sort of relatively large uninterrupted rainforest. Uh, in the sort of larger region of South and Southeast and Eastern Asia, um, it is uh, gradually becoming deforested through various kinds of political and economic forces, which uh, many of the local people there are. I mean, some in some ways uh, these are things which local people derive benefit from. It, it you know creates economic opportunities and things like that. But in a lot of ways, uh, local uh, many locals, uh, especially like uh, locals with a strong ethnolinguistic, linguistic uh, kind of minority status in the area, um, have not particularly liked those kinds of, uh, economic development activities that have deforested the region because they associate it with an exploitation of, uh, the, uh, of the general area's natural resources for the sake of various kinds of elites that don't live there, uh, and are, are more settled in central India, southern, uh, Myanmar, uh, uh, as well as in as in China and and other kinds of countries that wealth from the area tends to flow to, um, so it's it's certainly been a fascinating region to be able to uh, visit uh, over the years. I of course was mainly drawn by the fact that there's this extremely unique, basically the last of its kind, culture of human beings interacting with elephants in this transpetkai region. Um, which if listeners want to look it up on the map, they might have trouble finding the term transpatkai outside of the context of my own book, because I, I sort of developed the term to be intentionally binational as a strategy of anonymizing some interviews I did, uh, which were a little bit politically sensitive in nature. But they can look up Arunachal Pradesh in India or the Hukong Valley in um, Kachin State in northern Myanmar, and they'll get a good sense of exactly where this research was taking place. But this is the last uh, place in the world, basically, where there's a very, uh, there's still a very sort of vital and dynamic culture of human beings riding elephants across forest landscapes, uh, basically as a means of transportation to get from village to village or from camp to camp or to other sorts of mid-forest locations, um, sometimes secretly for various kinds of uh Uh, political or economic reasons that secretive mobilities would have to happen. Sometimes purely uh, as a response to weather conditions, the monsoon flooding can be so intense that the regular fixed uh, road network simply can't be used. So all of the motorized wheeled vehicles in the area are basically stuck for not necessarily months in a row, but like for several weeks after an especially bad uh, uh, rainstorm or Uh, flooding event uh, that's happened in the middle of the flooding season, Uh, the elephants are still able to get around just fine. They're sort of evolved to tromp around in the mud and they can wade and they can swim and they can do both of those things, wading and swimming with passengers and, um, and cargo strapped to their backs. It's all kind of extraordinary. And this is the kind of thing that would have been happening all over South and Southeast and Eastern Asia, more historically. Like if we go a few centuries back, but it's basically in this one area of the trans pet region that, that you still find something like this occurring. And one of the things I, I argue is I, I don't think this should be looked at purely as a little peek into a sort of uh, obsolete, archaic chapter of human animal experience. I think this is actually something which um, ought to actually be maybe receive some international investment and, 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 and be revived. I'm um, so I won't go too deeply into that because you probably have questions about that kind of thing.
0: I do, um, but one of the things, sort of, that I, I a new word came out at me in reading your book early on, which I think might tie to what you're saying about this sort of rich cultural history in this area. You um, I me mean, because your book incorporates a lot of the history, complicated or not, of the area, and and it centers on this interaction between humans and elephants. But you describe something called. Ethnoelephantology? I think that was the word. So I had never heard that before, um, but you sort of used it as if it was a common phrase. Can you tell us kind of what that means and, and how it relates to kind of what your book is doing?
1: Sure. Well, ethnoelephantology, I mean, I, I, it's a term that comes out of a, of a broader field called ethnozoology, uh, which is actually something that's, that's uh, been more centrally developed by anthropologists and not geographers such as myself, though we geographers tend to draw a lot of ideas from the field of anthropology. So it's not so unusual for me to kind of pluck concepts uh, where I, I think that they sort of sound really useful. And and so eth- uh, ethno-elephantology is a, is a kind of subset of that, which is especially focused on interactions between um, human beings uh, and uh, elephants. And the reason ethno- gets used is it's it's a reflection of the fact that when anthropologists and sort of related types of social scientists, like human geographers and sociologists do a very intensely kind of interview based work, that method is called ethnography for better or worse. I think if you're sort of an outsider to that whole kind of academic scene, it sounds a little weird. Like there's something about this that's especially hung up on the issue of of ethnicity. Which does oftentimes come up, uh, but uh, it's not ethnoelephantology, is describing the fact that you're interviewing local human cultures in order to figure out something about their interactions with surrounding uh, zoological wildlife, which in this case, uh, w- uh, in terms of what I was interested in, was the elephants. And it gets especially interesting uh, with ethnoelephantology because that can sort of branch into whether you're interested in interactions between uh, local human cultures and elephants in the wild, which is to say, not trained to do any kind of work on behalf of human communities, versus elephants that have been trained to do some kind of uh, supportive or cooperative work on behalf of human communities. And that's a kind of awkward distinction to make, or it's a fuzzy distinction to make, because unlike with a lot of other domesticated animals, dogs and cows and horses, where what you're looking at is the outcome of uh, centuries or oftentimes millennia of selective breeding programs imposed by humans in order to select the exact traits that humans wanted. Uh, like if you think about, you know, what does it makes a golden retriever so golden looking and an excellent retriever? Uh, and from what I gather a little bit, uh, well, they're, they're supposedly they're not the smartest dogs. Although I don't want to offend some of your listeners who have golden retrievers. I had one as a kid, so I feel like I can, I can say this. There's um, always a trade rate, off
0: with traits. There's, there's always, always a trade, a trade off. off. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um so so, and that's sort of the normal pattern with a lot of domesticated animals that uh the the there's a split between some sort of wild progenitor that happened thousands of years ago, maybe only a few hundred years ago in some cases, um and the domestic subspecies, and that was imposed by human beings, but that's not the case with elephants or with Asian elephants, uh which is the of the two elephant species one being African, which sometimes gets classified as multiple species, but let's leave that aside. And the other being Asian elephants. And it's really with Asian elephants, you have this longstanding history of humans using Asian elephants for certain types of practical tasks, like in particular transportation though, other kinds of tasks like combat uh, do come up historically uh, as well. But there's no actual like biological difference between the Asian elephants who are doing tasks for human beings and the wild elephants, there's no wild progenitor. It's the same species and the same Asian elephant can go from a condition of being a wild elephant at the beginning of its life to being a domestic elephant, maybe in the middle of its life. And then maybe it could be re-released back into the forest or could escape. Um, some, ele- some domestic elephants don't want to escape, but perhaps we're talking about one that does. Back into a wild condition and it can sort of switch between these different almost like states of consciousness or something. It's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Um, and if you think about it, it kind of makes sense because elephants they have a reputation well-deserved as being, um, extremely, uh, intelligent, uh, as having long memories, as being able to, as being very adept at, um, problem solving and possibly something like abstract reasoning, though there, it gets a little bit speculative. Um, so it sort of makes sense that elephants would be able to have these kind of, an individual elephant would be able to have a kind of modal shift, somewhat analogous to a human being able to immigrate into a completely different um, surrounding societal si- uh, uh, situation and then maybe go back to its home situation and sort of live between two worlds. And to a large extent, this is actually precisely what the Asian elephants, which are doing things like transportation across the transpat forest, this is exactly the kind of situation they're in.
0: So I want to circle back to something that you mentioned because I found it really fascinating. This you had one section where you really talked about comparing the history of African elephants and Asian elephants in terms of their interaction with humans, and I'm curious, you know, why do you think the interaction has persisted with the Asian elephant but not the African elephant?
1: Right. Yes. Yeah. So 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 the question is why why is there if you look at the history of human beings riding elephants, and then you look at that in terms of, are they riding Asian elephants or are they riding African elephants? And and, and those two species of elephants are really different. They diverge from each other evolutionarily uh, millions of years ago. So the, the, it's not like you could have an offspring of an Asian elephant and an African elephant. They're quite different species, though. And, and, and in some ways, they're very similar in terms of the kind of local ecological niches that are that they're occupying. And in terms of uh, very sort of comparable capacities for abstract uh, problem solving and 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 things like that, and they but you know they both are using their trunks to do fascinating things and and all the stuff that we like to see from elephants. But when we look at the Asian elephants, the history of human beings riding elephants, it seems to start maybe around 1000 BC. It's hard to say for sure, and then it basically is happening nonstop up through the present day. It might go away. Uh, in the next, you know, over the next century, Um, it's hard to say, but it's a pretty long standing and consistent history. And then by contrast, when you look at the history of human beings riding African elephants, you basically, at least in the written record, you sort of have these pulses of activity. So in the ancient Greco Roman world, there was a period where a pretty substantial number of African elephants were captured by various powers in Northern Africa, Um, such as the Ptolemaic Egyptians or the Carthaginians or a civilization called Mero, which is in what we today call Sudan, and a civilization called Aksum, which is what we would today uh, call Ethiopia. And to some extent, all of these uh, cultures were actually capturing African elephants uh, out of the forest and using them uh, to some degree uh, for uh, capturing them not just out of the forest, probably out of savannah landscapes, um, but using them probably for for transportation to some extent and combat to a relatively greater extent. Um, And then that sort of classical period of using African elephants for those kinds of um, practical purposes goes away. And at least in the written record, you don't really hear anything about African elephants being used in this way again until the colonial era, when uh, various um, European colonists, especially European colonists, with some familiarity with what was going on in south and southeast asia so like the british the french they had colonies in south and southeast asia and so they were like well if people are using elephants over here maybe it would be possible in the congo or in uh, east africa etc so there was a, a kind of an attempt at bringing back um, something like the use of african elephants as a means of transportation in sub-saharan africa though it never really it never really got off the ground uh, the reason it would uh the African elephants were seen as really valuable potentially for transportation, at least by certain European colonists, was that they were trying to bring in their horses and other kinds of more kind of like European style beasts of burden. And it wasn't working very well because the tsetse fly, which is sort of very prevalent in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, tended not to interact very well, uh, uh, tended to preclude the introduction of certain um, Eurasian quadrupeds like Uh, like uh, horses and cattle. Whereas obviously African elephants who live in sub-Saharan Africa do not have a problem with the tsetse fly. Probably their skin is too thick and and other sorts of um, immunities like that. So that was the reason why, at least from the point of view of certain colonists, they thought it would be a great idea to domesticate the African elephant uh, just to to do the kind of work that oxen and, and horses and mules would otherwise be doing. But it, it didn't really, it didn't quite get off the ground. Those kinds of experiments. There are some more kind of secondhand um, accounts of possibly certain uh, indigenous peoples in pre-colonial sub-Saharan Africa possibly having local uh, traditions of like riding elephants. I, I just found the the sort of the faintest references to things like that, uh, which which does come up in the chapter I think you're you're thinking about. But on the whole. In uh, in Africa, you don't have this sort of long-standing history of people riding elephants. Whereas in Asia, you really do. It's a non-stop history of people, um, mostly capturing elephants out of the forest and then training them for labor as transport animals. Um, in some cases, as combat animals. That goes away by the time you get to the era of modern warfare, certainly, um, as well as for other kinds of, um, I guess, social uses like in parades uh, for uh, religious rituals and festivals uh, and, and things like that. And so this is, a, it's a very sort of striking difference. And uh, the, the, the main reason that, that I, I think, or I argue that this, this difference came about is that in Asia, what's going on over the course of several thousand years is that you have these big centers of human population, especially in China, as well as in India and to a lesser degree, but but also a factor in certain of the big river valleys in Southeast Asia, like the Irrawaddy and the Mekong and the Chao Praya. And what these, these big centers of human population are doing is they're dependent upon mass agriculture. In some cases, uh, they need to grow rice and in other cases they need to grow uh, wheat and other cereal grains like that, but they're reliant upon a form of agricultural production which uh, requires permanent clearance of forest cover. And so what this is doing over the millennia is it's pushing the local elephant species, the Asian elephants, out of the river valleys and into the forest. And simultaneous with that, it's also pushing certain human beings that don't really want to be absorbed into these expanded kingdoms out of those same river valleys and into the forest. And so this dynamic, which is taking place over several thousand years again, um, is creating certain sort of subtle selective pressures for Asian elephants that can kind of get along with the kinds of human beings that would tend to flee into the forest in order to avoid getting absorbed into a agriculturally intensive kingdom or empire. And so it's a very peculiar kind of dynamic, which even though there was never a human designed selective breeding program being imposed upon Asian elephants, Um, Nonetheless, there's a set of dynamics occurring, not really designed by anyone in particular, that would make it very likely that uh, elephants with a certain set of skills useful to forest oriented human beings would be relatively likely to um, survive this highly destructive process of human spread in uh, eastern and southern and southeast Asia. And so that's the Asian elephant situation over the millennia. And then by contrast, to bring it back to Africa. Um, since the whole the whole the whole sort of crux of that discussion is the comparison, um, you don't really have anything quite analogous. You have some very kind of important um historical kingdoms and empires in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, the Songhai Empire and the uh, Zimbabwe kingdom uh, and places like that. But in none of those cases is there this intensive process of um creating mass agriculture zones and a process of intensive deforestation? Happening, And so, in other words, you don't have a process that's pushing tons and tons and tons of African elephants out of their forested areas and forcing them to sort of come up with a different skill set and a different niche in order to figure out what they're going to do after having been pushed out of their um, historical environment. Whereas with Asian elephants, you absolutely do have that. A biological evidence with Asian elephants um, suggests that if you go back just a few thousand years... Uh, They were mostly uh, living by um, munching on grasses along the big fertile river valleys prior to those big fertile river valleys being sort of conquered by human beings and transformed into mass agricultural zones. Um, So they were like, they were river animals, basically. Um, And it sort of makes sense if you think about what amazing swimmers they are, and you think about all that kind of bulk and the fact that they sort of they like to be in the water in order to keep themselves cool and all these things. It kind of makes sense that they would be kind of river valley animals, but that's not how they live anymore for the most part, because rivers like the Irrawaddy and the, the Yangtze River and the Mekong, etc., are intensively settled by human beings for farmland and increasingly for urbanization. And so Asian elephants kind of had to reinvent themselves as forest animals and as hill animals, um, both of those things together. Uh, and... Uh, that that reinvention, um, they had to sort of learn to digest a sort of different set of uh, of uh, vegetation uh, uh, to, you know, uh, uh, for their dietary requirements on a daily basis. But it also meant that they had to sort of figure out, OK, what am I going to do uh, in this forested area, which is full of various kinds of human beings? Some of them are elephant hunters. Some of them are elephant riders. Some of them don't want to have anything to do with elephants at all. And so elephants that would be relatively likely to get along with the elephant riders would be relatively likely to survive and pass on their genes, provided the elephant riders actually gave their elephants an opportunity to mate, which is sort of the crucial thing uh, that I see coming out of this research in terms of um, implications for Asian elephant conservation.
0: Yeah. Which, and I, we're,
1: which I can get to, but I, I've been going on for a while. So probably, no, that's uh, OK. We're, we're going to talk about.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, you know, one of the things that you brought up um, is in, in, in this comparison is sort of catching elephants. And I'm going to I'm going to confess that. I struggled the most with the chapter where you talk about how the elephants are caught in that process. Mm-hmm. And there were three kind of main uh, ways. And I think that um, you sort of described the Mela Shikar, is that how you say it? Mm-hmm. Approach as sort of the least disturbing. and And I was wondering if you had the opportunity to observe these processes at all and how you felt about it.
1: Uh, yeah, that, that that's a great question. Um, and, and I think I'll, I'll explain in some more, more detail the different catching methods and why they're significant and um, some of the ethical dilemmas there, but also why I think there's a massive amount of potential from these practices from a conservationist point of view. But just to get to your question, uh, several opportunities to observe firsthand were offered to me. And in each case, I sort of paused and turned it down, as a matter of fact. Because in each case, I was a bit worried that if I saw, I knew what I was going to see. I was going to see something like an elephant calf tied up with all four limbs to four trees. And it would probably be something like we would arrive on on a fully trained adult elephant bringing treats, but there would also be some, well, that's the positive reinforcement. And there would also be some negative reinforcement. And I saw, I met elephants that had scars on their forehead from the negative reinforcement that had happened earlier in their lives. So I sort of had a sense of what I was going to see. And I thought, well, if I see that firsthand, I'm going to have a crisis of motivation and I'm not going to be able to complete the research. So I think I better say no. And I think I'll just I'll, I'll just interview people in as much detail as I possibly can to sort of get a sense of, of how that works and what I think of it and what the sort of possibilities uh, exist for uh, making those kinds of processes More humane where possible, um, and then exploring the possibility of eliminating them altogether, which, of course, um, obviously has to be uh, kept open for uh, a possibility as well. So, yeah, there are these multiple ways that people in the area, who mostly hail from um, uh, several ethnic minority groups, by the way, I haven't mentioned them yet, and I probably should. Uh, The Kachin uh, being an incredibly important one. Uh, And you hear a little bit about the Kachin today because. Uh, it's a relatively important ethnic minority group in Myanmar in terms of the um, the political coup, the military junta coup, and its aftermath that's that's occurring in Myanmar today. And I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit more later in the interview. But the Kachin have kind of loomed large uh, in relationship to the political aftermath of that coup. So uh, it's definitely a group that that bears mentioning. Um, other groups are very important in regards to this this um, elephant catching training and Riding culture to the Compti uh, people are very important, uh, as well as some smaller groups, uh, the Moran people, the Adi people. I realize this can begin to feel a little bit like a a swirl of names you've never heard before at a certain point, Uh, but they do bear mentioning, uh, as well as some of the more kind of um, uh, mainstream ethnic majority groups in the general area, whether the ethnic Burmese or Bama population uh, or uh, Assamese. Or Bengali people even uh, will sometimes wind up uh, in these areas doing work in uh, relation with, with elephants for uh, the sort of the, the, the transportation value of the elephants. So in terms of wild elephants being caught, yeah, the general method that um, I learned the most about through interviews primarily was uh, elephant catchers called, called fundi. Uh, will go into the forest riding trained elephants that are specialized in catching elephants, and those are oftentimes called kunky elephants. And these terms can can shift depending on what side of the Patkai Mountains you're talking to people on. But um, the terminology is is strikingly similar. It's a matter of like it'll be different dialects of the same term, even though people are speaking Assamese versus Burmese on uh, in regards to non non elephant related topics uh, on on the two sides of the mountains. And so the, the uh, fundies and the kunky elephants will go into the forest and they'll find a wild elephant. Um, sometimes an adult, uh, usually they'll try to find a calf because you'll get it's easier to train a calf and you'll get more years of work out of a calf elephant. And they'll sort of throw this kind of double looped lasso, it's a bit hard to describe, over the uh, calf elephant's uh, neck. And uh, then they'll, you know, after having made sure that, None of the other wild elephants are around that are going to attack them. So this is why it's very important for them to have their own trained kunky elephants nearby to kind of keep things relatively under control. As far as that's concerned, the calf elephant will then be usually moved to somewhere else, um, but will then be kept in place usually with like rope um, that, that sort of keeps the calf tied to various trees. Uh, And then over the course of several months will be brought food, and uh, there'll be things like song, and in some cases there'll be, um, so, frankly, somewhat more uh, abusive practices uh, will be used in order to break the calf in and and, and sort of re-identify it as a human-friendly, uh, uh, basically, work elephant. And so, so that that's one of the methods. Um, historically, there were some more, there were some methods which, in some ways, uh, well, there's a trade-off. Uh, there, there was a, a method that many of the uh, royal kings of um, historical Thailand or Siam and uh, historical Myanmar or, or Burma would use um, some historical kings would use where a vast stockade would be built like out of many, um, many poles of, of wood would be erected uh, all throughout the forest, sometimes many kilometers long. And then massive numbers of people would come marching through the forest. With uh, torches and beating drums in order to frighten a herd of wild elephants into this particular stockade, which would be laid out in a particular shape that would sort of trap them at the kind of corner of where these these uh, these sort of um, uh, these poles would all come together. And in some ways, that sounds just as bad, perhaps, but in some ways, it was actually better for the elephants because this could actually maintain elephant families. So a calf would stay uh, with with the calf's uh, mother elephant and auntie elephant, that being the kind of a uh, uh, the sort of the basis of like an elephant family unit, I guess, because the father elephants are not usually involved. They are not. There's 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 exceptions to that, which is sure. noted, but it's generally speaking, it's it's like a mama, auntie calf.
0: Yeah. It's like a matriarchal sort of social system. And in general, like African elephants, Asian elephant males are solitary, though, as you point out, and as I know, as an animal behaviorist, there are always, but there's that other situation. And and a lot of times it's environmental conditions that will influence sociality of any particular species. Um, But you're right. It would keep the family Unit, which is incredibly important to elephants, together. So this is
1: this is something which, um, in Myanmar, up until a year uh, a year or so ago, until very recently, the state forestry department uh, actually had um, elephant logging villages, um, which were, you know, um, that date back to not just the colonial era, but to the era of pre-colonial Burmese kings. And uh, where these are villages organized around using elephants to log valuable timber, especially teak, out of the forest. There's various rationales given for why it's better to have roadless logging and teak forests as opposed to having to build trucking roads like we have in northern Maine or in, in other sorts of area or Oregon, other areas of like valuable forestry in the United States. There's arguments given. I, I'm not this is sort of it's a little bit outside my expertise for why. In the case of teak, you don't want to build big trucking roads and you want to let the soil kind of do its own thing and let it's better if you can have elephants doing most of the work hauling the teak out of the forest. So up until recently, when uh, these uh, teak, these logging villages that are organized around humans and elephants basically living together in the village, um, when they would sometimes need to replenish their elephant stock. Because they weren't getting enough pregnancies, though usually the number of pregnant the pregnancy rate was quite good, uh, which is which is a, a point of significance we should get to. But uh, they would they would need to catch wild elephants, and the preference from the point of view of the Burmese forestry departments is you want to use the stockade method, um, because the stockade method you could you can maintain elephant families, and it's less psychologically traumatic for the captured elephants, which I always thought was very interesting. Um, on the other hand, you could argue that in some ways, uh, having to have these massive stockades in the middle of the forest creates a disruption in the layout of the forest, unless the forestry departments goes through and cleans up the mess they made by building the stockade, which I'm, I'm sure in some cases they do, but probably not always. Whereas the previous method I described, this kind of more lasso method, is much more kind of like lighter in terms of the marks it leaves on the, on the landscape. So there is this kind of a trade off in terms of I, probably uh, from the point of view of, of many listeners, it still sounds as if, well, maybe none of these things should be happening in the first place, which fair enough, uh, up until up until relatively recently, it, the future of the Burmese elephant logging system is not really that clear right now. I, I feel very fortunate to have seen it and what might prove to have been it's the final decade of its history, which is the 2010s. Um, though you know, maybe I'll 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 be wrong, and 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 some elephants, some Burmese elephants, will wind up being repurposed back in those in those kinds of villages. Mm-hmm. But but that that particular capturing process uh, was still being being used with and, and the logic of um, the Burmese Forestry Department in particular has been especially interested in this question of when you're training a wild elephant to become a human-friendly work elephant are there ways of keeping the negative reinforcement at an absolute minimum and organizing the entire training process around positive reinforcement? Um, so that's something which the Burmese Forestry Department has been especially interested in. Whereas if you go back to more like the region of the Transpat which tends to be much more dominated by ethnic minority groups, there's been significantly less interest in that and more interest in, well, how can we sort of uh, engage in, the, in this kind of activity? While keeping sort of these big state bureaucracies at arm's length, so there's sort of a different set of, I would say, human, uh, moral and political imperatives at pl- at sort of at play if you compare both areas, which is to say the more kind of tribal dominated Trans Patkai situation versus the more kind of state dominated Burmese Forestry Department situation.
0: Okay, I mean it's it's a complicated thing, and and, and we're going to talk about sort of, um, you know, how you think and and where you saw this influence in conservation, because I do think that's important. And, you know, I think so we'll talk about that. But I agree that things are not black and white, uh, right, especially when you're dealing with a rich sort of cultural history of interacting with the environment in any particular way. And so this sort of Western perspective that, you know, coming in and finger wagging at, at other cultures for how they interact with, with wildlife maybe is not the best approach to achieving conservation goals. As you can tell, we have a lot of ground to cover. And in the next episode, we start talking about the relationship between the people catching and working with the elephants, some of the elephants themselves, some memorable elephants in history, and what the future might hold for the Asian elephant and its relationship with humans in terms of conservation. Hope that you tune in next week for the second part of my interview with Dr. Jacob Schell. It's truly an important conversation And I think that we need to recognize that sometimes those lines are blurry and they are muddy. And perhaps there is a pathway forward that preserves cultural traditions, the independence and autonomy of peoples, and also preserves the independence and autonomy of the wildlife that they interact with. Thanks for listening. And if you're digging the show, please subscribe and share so other people can learn about the show you can check out my show notes at jenniferverdalen.com or you can go to the podcast website wild connection the podcast hosted by podbean thanks for listening